rainy night. I'm impressed at uh, how many of you turned up despite the, uh, the uh, obstacles created by nature. I'd also like to welcome our web viewers. We have, uh, I don't know how many with us, but we, uh, I'm sure, people from all over the globe tuning into this. Uh, so we're very happy also to have this global audience. So I've been asked to introduce this evening's speaker, speakers. Uh, this is a great pleasure for me, not only because I count both of them as friends and mentors and collaborators, but because both have made unique contributions to advancing the cause expressed in tonight's theme, beauty is not a luxury, but a human necessity. Now, before I continue these introductions, allow me just a brief word about the two organizations hosting this evening, Museum of Biblical Art Mobia and the Dietrich von Hildebrand Legacy Now, our partnership is based not on some nearly accidental collaboration, but on the conviction that our missions are mutually reinforcing. As Tricia just said, Mobia presents world-class exhibits of works that explore art inspired by the Bible and the great repository of biblical images and deeds. The current exhibit is just the latest realization of this important mission. The Hildebrand Project has been entrusted with the task of presenting the thought and witness of our namesake, Dietrich and Hildebrand, to a new generation. Lived in the early part of the 20th century, lived actually in 1977, lived in New York, was fruitful active here. But in a way, our work is one not just of preserving, but of reactivating as well. So our primary work lies in making the entire body of the Milgram's writings available in printed and digital editions. It's about 20 volumes, so I'm signed up for a long time anyway. We also host regular conferences, symposia, lectures to present these publications to a wide public. Now, tonight's partnership with Mobia and Hildebrand Project is primarily possible because Van Hildebrand was a great and unabashed defender of beauty and all things beautiful. One does not have to read far in his magisterial work, The Aesthetics, his two-volume work, Aesthetics, or in his other writings, to see that the theme, not by bread alone, is in fact one of the light motifs of his vision of human flourishing. Now, we at Mobia and the Hildebrand Project recognize that beauty today is often viewed suspiciously. Some doubt its existence altogether, while others argue that it has lost its currency in our postmodern world. So this is why I propose we need advocates for beauty like Dietrich and Hildebrand, and in our own time, advocates like Dana Joy and Roberta Amundsen, who believe deeply in beauty, who are nourished by it, who are witnesses to it, and who have the rare gift of being able to speak about it in a way that both is transcendent and ordinary, accessible. Now, Dana Joy certainly needs no introduction, Many attendees in this room think attest to this fact. And if I can simply say this, during Mr. Joria's tenure as chairman of the National Endowment for the Arts, he not only not launched many significant national arts initiatives, such as the Big Read and the Shakespeare in American Communities, which I believe are still continuing, right, uh, beyond his tenure at the NEA, but he also traveled the nation, sometimes speaking five and six times daily uh, to students, to teachers, to parents, to elected officials, to donors, artists making the case for genuine art as essential for civic flourishing. So we are all indebted to Mr. Joy for having developed a kind of public argument for art and for beauty and for being so persuasive on her behalf. Now, a word on, on Roberta Amundsen, who, as all of you know, I think is the chair of the Board of Mobia. She's a gifted writer, speaker, and philanthropist who really have quite a vast array of initiatives. I've always been impressed by how Mrs. Amundsen's munificence and the art world is not just a result of high society peer pressure. <laughs> Rather, through a kind of generosity of spirit, she feels compelled to share with all of us uh, 
what she has been privileged to see in her travels and her wide experience in our So we're also very indebted to you. And so without further ado, and looking forward to a wonderful evening, I give you a enjoy it. So I called Dana up on the phone. I remember I was in uh, I was in Arizona at the time, and because uh, I was looking for speakers for our salon and having heard Dana, I thought he'd be good, which was um, wise of me or discerning. Anyway, um, we talked for two hours about the state of the arts and the role of beauty, and that was when Dana had a little more and time. I didn't even charge you. Yeah, I know. I know. I was going <laughs> to say you had more time too. So tonight we've come full circle. Um, I'm going to review Dana's biography briefly, but for so, those of you who don't know, um, as a Californian, I have to announce that Dana was born in California um, to a Latin family. His father is Sicilian and his mother from Mexican background, very far back in the United States, and he studied at Stanford and Harvard. He earned an MBA at Stanford and an MFA at Harvard. MA. MA, sorry. Complicated. Okay, I'll get this straight. Um, it's good to have the person here. They can always correct you. So. He worked in advertising here in New York for 15 years, and one of his claims to fame there, which I think is something people all need to know, is that he handled the account for Jell-O. It's very important. Um, and he can talk about that if he wants to. That was his day job. His true vocation was poetry. In 1991, his Atlantic article, Can Poetry Matter?, began a heated debate and launched perhaps a revolution. By the end of the 90s, Dana was back in California, making his way full-time as a poet, librettist, and critic. In 2002, his book of poems, Interrogations at Noon, won the American Book Award, and he was appointed chairman of the National Endowment for the Arts. I believe the first poet to ever hold that position. But we should make it clear it wasn't cause and effect. What? <laughs> Very. Two unrelated random acts in the universe. <laughs> Dana was confirmed unanimously by the U.S. Senate twice, which is some kind of achievement, which you may want to comment on. Business Week called him the man who saved the NEA, and while there, Dana launched, as John Henry said, Jazz Masters, Shakespeare in the Schools, the, the big read, which took uh, a single book to a whole community, and everybody read it and talked about it, and some of those communities were in Russia and Egypt. Um, and most surprising of all, he started um, Poetry Out Loud, and the, the latter brought back that most disdained of all educational practices, memorization. In this case, memorizing and reciting poems in competition. The program is now nationwide with the 50 state winners competing annually in our nation's capital, and that continues to go on. At the NEA, Dana also shepherded two studies on the state and nature of reading, reading at risk and to read or not to read, and the findings were not encouraging. Dana left the NEA in 2009 to start the Arts and Culture Program at the Aspen Institute, and last fall, for those of us who live in California, hooray, he returned to California, where he's the Judge Whitney Professor of Poetry and Public Culture. Don't you love it? So welcome, Dana. Thank you. 
since, since this is the Museum of Biblical Art, I thought I should open with a verse from the Bible. Psalm 96, 9. Oh, worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. Let the whole earth stand in awe of him. Because this is an art museum, we'll leave worship, God, holiness, and awe to others and focus on what sounds like an aesthetic consideration, beauty. Recently walking by my local Ace Hardware store in Corona Del Mar, I saw an ad spread across the window that said, the longing for beauty. And it was selling paint and other things and wallpaper to fix up your house. Okay? But meanwhile, in the art world for the last 20 years or better, even saying the word beauty has been, been verboten. So Dana, help us. What is beauty, this contested notion? Well, you know, let's just, you know, lick our finger and put it in the air and just sense where the culture is on beauty. And almost anybody who's been involved in a graduate program over the last quarter century knows that beauty is a loaded word. Uh, you know, it, it has been deconstructed, rejected, uh, redefined, reconceptualized. And the standard academic understanding of beauty is that it is not a universal concept, it is not a natural concept. It is a social construction. It is a enterprise by one group of people to uh, elevate a certain uh, set of principles, a certain appearance, a certain set of ideas to aggrandize them and gain power over another group. It is something that is socially uh, uh, subversively powerful. Uh, this is, you know, in a sense, the universal notion of beauty as it's now understand uh, in American graduate programs. Um, this strikes me as something which is not only a departure uh, from tradition, I think anybody would agree on that, but it strikes me as a misunderstanding of both what beauty is and any sense of empirical reality uh, in terms of how people across the world in different cultures respond to a set of things which has traditionally been called beautiful. Uh, I would define beauty uh, as a process, and I'd say that this process has at least four steps. Uh, I would imagine, is there anybody in this room who is not busy, uh, you know, who didn't have to sort of rush to get here, fighting traffic, pedestrians, the weather, uh, God knows what else, uh, you know, and, and there's a kind of, of simply effort to exist. I don't think it was any different from the, you know, for the slaves who were pulling the pyramids, uh, you know, for you know, people that were in original tribal societies. There is a kind of existential burden of existing which preoccupies us in how do we survive, how do we prosper. What the experience of beauty is, is it in the midst of this rush of sheer existence, you know, we find ourselves suddenly stopping. Something arrests our intelligence and we linger for a moment to see it. Uh, those of you who know Goethe's Faust. Uh, does anybody remember what is the one thing that Faust cannot say 
without, you know, uh, in a sense, violating his agreement with, with Mephistopheles. It's, Verweile doch, du bist so schön. You know, which I think you translate, you know, linger because you are so beautiful. You know, he can't, in a sense, bask in reality. It, it's all very Germanic. Uh, an Italian would have never put that into a contract with the devil. Um, uh, but if, but this, this notion of suddenly stopping, being arrested by some phenomenon, it can be a person's face, it can be a flower, a waterfall, a rainbow, a statue, a poem. The second part is that one feels intuitively, it's not a matter of intellection, that, that one feels pleasure in this lingering, in this arrestment of, uh, of one's uh, attention. And one wants to linger, to, to, um, to, to uh, how would you say it, Ex lengthen this pleasure. And then three, something odd happens, which is that in the very act of lingering in this phenomenon that gives you pleasure, that arrests your intelligence, you begin to see things about the object that you're looking at that uh, you either didn't know or had forgotten. You have this sense that you are looking into in some finite, not infinite way, the very nature of the thing itself, that the, the pleasure is leading you into knowing. Uh, and then the fourth aspect of beauty is that it's over. You cannot control this. You know, a, a mere pleasure like an ice cream cone or a beer, a glass of wine or whatever, you can, in a sense, possess, you can predictably give yourself but there's something about beauty, I think, that resides outside of yourself. You can participate in, but you cannot own. Um, and is there anybody in the room that hasn't felt an experience like this? Uh, you know, it's, it is, I think, a universal. Uh, to ignore this, and I think, is to misunderstand one of the very central uh, notions of what human sensibility is uh, that leads us into both our sense of the world around us, nature, and, you know, certainly for tonight's purposes, art. Yeah. Thank you. I'm sorry to be so wordy. That's all right. Does this microphone sound okay to you guys? To me, it sounds positively surreal. Yeah. Um, sounds like, you know, it's like Boris Karloff is whispering yes. in my ear. Yes. Yes. Yes, Roberta. Yes, yes, Dana. In his, in his 1939 short story, we'll talk about it. I'll, can't hear you. you can't hear me? Do I move it too much? Okay, I'm sorry. I was trying to hold it away because I hear the, the um, echo. So I will take your admonition and behave properly. Okay. In his 1939 short story, Barn Burning, William Faulkner tells of how a vision of order, love, and beauty enables the son of an arsonist who also has a penchant for hitting his wife and children to turn his father in and break the cycle of abuse. 
It is that vision of beauty that gives 10-year-old Colonel Sartoris Snopes the courage to do something to change his world. So what is the role of beauty in our world, and what does it have to do with art, both visual and literary? You could ask a broader question. Uh, I'll, I'll work on it for the next one. Well, well, let's start for a second with Faulkner's barn burning, which I didn't know you were going to mention. I mean, Sorry. Most of you know this story. It's, a, you know, it's really one of the great short stories in American literature. And it's not an uncomplicated story, because it's about a little boy who betrays his father in favor of a kind of, uh, you know, not much better aristocrat, you know, who simply has better architecture than dad does. Uh, and, I, and I think it, you know, that Faulkner is a good example, because when we're saying the beautiful, we're not saying the pretty. I mean, beauty is a word that's so abused in our culture. There's beauty aids, beauty department, you know, beauty parlors, beauty school. I was in Chicago a couple weeks ago, and I walked by the Chicago School of Aesthetics, which apparently is where you get nose jobs. Uh, you know, and uh, so we have to reclaim this because beauty is not, and this is what Faulkner reminds us, is not about the pretty the nice. It's about the experiences whose present arrests and the pleasure we get may be the pleasure of terror, of awe, of exhilaration to the level of danger. Uh, and out of that comes a vision of reality. And reality is not all nice. Uh, in the, the primary you know, vision that much art gives is death. You know, that we are mortal, you know, and how does that mortality uh, actually color every moment of our existence? Now, because of that, I mean, I think there's a mechanism that operates. I think it's a misunderstanding of beauty and of art, and even of nature, you know, where they'll say, man is the only uh, species which kills its fellow members. Huh? You know, I mean, have you ever read about nature? Uh, I mean, nature read in tooth and claw that, you know, what it does is by actually seeing into the heart of a thing, by going from pleasure into knowing, uh, what we get is a kind of acceptance. You sort of realize the reality of the phenomenon. And to a certain degree, uh, it leads you into love. You know, to love this reality that you're seeing because you know that it is right, that it has an order of which you are a part. You are inextricably part. This, if you think of a natural beauty, you stand at the edge of the, of the Grand Canyon, it's terrifying but it is real, and it is part of this world for, you know, which has created you and for which you are part of. And I think that that, in a sense, leads you to accept, to know, to understand the truth of things that you might not otherwise easily accept. And that process, that process from pleasure to knowledge 
to, you could either say simply acceptance, but I would say love uh, is transformative. It changes who you are. And that's why when Dostoevsky says something which seems absurd in The Idiot, beauty will save the world. What Dostoevsky means is not that, you know, beauty by itself will save the world, but no vision of transformation which is not beautiful, which does not respond, in a sense, respond to the reality and give us the pleasure in actually uh, thinking of participating in, no system, no vision, political, moral, human that does not provide that is likely to motivate people to change the world, to redeem the world. And I just said, that, but that's what bothers me sometimes is that people, and it's on both the right and the left, it's, it's true for atheists as it is for Christians or Jews uh, or Muslims, is that, that you're going to create some work of art that has this immediate moral impact, as if we have the right painting, it will encourage the public to have better dental health. Uh, and, and I think that that's not only reductive, it's just stupid. Uh, but there's a lot of this stupidity that is institutionalized now in our museums, our universities, and our culture. That kind of leads into my next question, Dana, because uh -oh. the, which was good of you since you don't know what it is. Um, your latest book is Pity the Beautiful, and the title to me, the title poem, it seems to be ironic in some sense. And so I wondered if you could talk about how beauty has been distorted, and maybe you want to share the poem with the group as well. Well, I'd be happy to, to uh, recite the poem, although, you know, I guess I should maybe answer the question first so we don't forget it. Uh, I mean, if you think of this, how is beauty conventionally used in our society? And we live in a society right now where almost every inch of our social existence has been commercialized. You cannot get away from people selling you things. Uh, you know, it's even, it permeates the schools, the media. I mean, you can't wait for your luggage at the airport, you know, without it. You can't ride in a New York cab, you know, without these things coming on. They're so afraid that you won't buy enough. Uh, and so in this, this materialistic, uh, driven culture, beauty is understood as to be something that we can apply externally that gives us a decorous external appearance. Beauty aids, beauty school, the Chicago School of Aesthetics. Uh, and this is, I think, in, in a weirdly mistaken way what so much uh, art theory has critiqued. But what beauty really is, is a way of seeing into the heart of the thing. And I still think the best explanation of beauty that I've ever heard uh, is from Thomas Aquinas. Now, those of you who have never read Thomas Aquinas, whom I assume is the vast majority of this audience, unless, you know, like a few of us here were, you know, went through 12 years of Catholic school, uh, you will know it from the end of James Joyce's Portrait of an Artist as a Young Man. In fact, the climax of that very great novel are two of the characters having a kind of mock debate about this. But what Aquinas says 
is that beauty has three stages. You know, I had four, I guess he's more economical. Um, and he says the first one, uh, and he uses several words for it, but forma, you know, is, is basically that you see a shape. And if you think of the, of the Latin word forma, it means both shape and form and beauty. You know, when the sailors saw this gorgeous island, you know, after being at sea for weeks, they said, Formosa. They recognized the beauty of land, which is where they were designed to dwell, uh, which looked awfully good you know, after scurvy. Uh, and so you have form. You see this beautiful shape, and the shape arrests you. As you study the shape, you begin to see that every detail of that shape has some correspondence to the whole. Every, the parts have a, uh, an integrative relationship to the whole. Let's just take something in nature. Let's take a tree. You see, I live in California in the hill country. You'll see an astonishingly beautiful oak on a hillside. You'll see the whole shape. And as you study it, you notice all of the branches you know, form this, you know, this strange kind of non-symmetrical but gorgeous sort of design. The closer you get, every leaf, every twig, the lichens and the moss growing on it are all part of a whole. And you keep going back and forth and back and forth, and you create this kind of, of dialectic of perception. And you start, in a sense, to see what a tree really is, which is not simply a, a plant, a vegetable, but it is a plant which, in a sense, takes the shape of the wind, of the sun, of the earth, of the weather. It tells you something almost unknowably uh, profound about the very spot on which you're standing. So you've got forma, you've got this relationship of the parts to the whole, which Aquinas calls consonantia. Elsewhere, he calls it harmonia. Both of them, you notice, are musical metaphors. And then comes the interesting thing where he says you experience claritas, which is not clarity, but is a shining forth. It's an epiphany. And in a sense where suddenly, and this is Jacques Maritain's uh, formulation of Aquinas, the secrets of existence radiate onto the intelligence. The secrets of existence radiate onto the intelligence. And we live in this world of almost infinite uh, complexity of mystery. And what beauty does is bring us into the secrets of our own being, of our own destiny, of our own world. Uh, and so, you know, that is what, you know, in a sense, how I would typified in that way. Now, my poem is about something else. It's about, and, and I think you know, most of us can feel that, that, that um, we envy the beautiful, but their beauty is actually a kind of hard fate. Uh, this is a, a poem I wrote to be as transparent as a Renaissance lyric. Uh, I'll say one other thing about it. I, I wanted to work a poem that had the slang words of my dad's generation my generation and my kids' generation all rolled into one. Uh, you're not supposed to use slang in, in a poem, because, but I, I love it because if you get at the actual metaphors hidden in the slang, they are illuminating. 
pity the beautiful. Pity the beautiful, the dolls and the dishes, the babes with big daddies granting their wishes. Pity the pretty boys, the hunks and Apollos, the golden lads whom success always follows, the hotties, the knockouts, the tens out of ten, the drop-dead gorgeous, the great leading men. Pity the faded, the bloated, the blousy, the paunchy Adonis whose luck's turned lousy. Pity the gods, no longer divine. Pity the night, the stars lose their shine. You introduced the second section of your book with a quote from William Shakespeare, and I was racking my brain to see if I could remember where it came from, so maybe you can help me with that. One of the sonnets. Thank you. The quote Don't is, ask me which one. Okay. That was my next question, David. Um, how with this rage shall beauty hold a plea? And as I said, as you said at the beginning, you explained that our world has rejected the very word beauty because it is seen as this social construction that enables one group of people to control another, and beauty becomes about power over others. But to me, that in itself seems to be a kind of rage against something, beauty that is itself uncontrollable. There are signs that this is changing, but it's very real. Why do we face this rage in our culture? And why does that make beauty perhaps even more relevant to culture today? I think we're in a period of nihilism, you know, and it's, it's a low-cost nihilism. You know, in the old days, a nihilist actually got you know, arrested by the czar and executed. Uh, now they get tenure and a pension. Uh, you know, and it's, it's a kind of, you know, I think it's a, an expression of the powerlessness that most people feel in society. You know, that since they can't control things, can we tear something down? And that gives us some uh, uh, small sense of, of power. But it seems to me that, you know, that it is something that is misplaced, uh, you know, because, you know, beauty, I think, is actually liberating, you know, because you know, it, if you believe, see, let me say one other thing, is that once you remove beauty as a concept, philosophically, from aesthetics, it is almost a sure thing that very soon after you will remove truth. And indeed, that's what happened with postmodernism, you know, that the law of gravity is a social construction, you know, which has been imposed by certain people on other people. And you have this, this whole decay of a sense of, of not being able to know things. There's no universals. The interesting thing is that for the last 20 or 25 years, there's been an extraordinary amount of hard scientific research into what we would think is beauty. I mean, it really starts with the structure of flowers, the behaviors of insects, the songs of birds, the uh, mating habits of, of animals that are associated with appearance, uh, uh, the, the uh, differences in universe and, and universals of, of different concepts of human beauty, of natural beauty across cultures, uh, of mathematical similarities between things that people find beautiful in music, in art, in humans, uh, in, in natural phenomenon. 
And the astonishing thing is that uh, the, the research is almost all reinforcing that there are a huge number of universals and that actually these things are quite, uh, it's something that we share on our humanity. And people can almost always per perceive and appreciate that which is beautiful in other cultures. Our art museums are full of that. Uh, you know, we, we see those things and we respond to them, you know, with, with our humanity. Um, you know, so, you know, I think that, that what ha has happened is that we have taken beauty out of our society, as we've taken it out of our, our public places, out of, we've taken art out of education, uh, we've taken it out of our media, and we re have replaced it with, I think, a kind of utilitarian materialism. You know, we have seen in our culture atrophy. Uh, there are things, people will be guided by pleasure and knowledge in a way that they will not be guided by regulation and mandate. Uh, I think the failure of American education, you know, is that we are taking all of our children. Now, let me just say something. You, some of you may know this, but I bet most of you don't. One out of every three American teenagers drops out of high school. If you drop out of high school, you will not only uh, make less money, have fewer choices in life, uh, more likely end up in prison, you will die six to seven years earlier. It's an economic problem, it's a civic problem, it's a problem of public health. I think part of the problem is that we have taken art out of the schools. We've taken, we've basically taken kids and say there's really two ways of succeeding. You can be a jock, which gives you some kind of socialization, or you can test well. There's not much room for you otherwise. Uh, and it, uh, I tend to think that the more doors of success that you give to people, the more people will succeed. That does not mean that you condescend to these people. I was trained, I was raised in a very poor neighborhood, very rough neighborhood in Los Angeles. It's the neighborhood where Quentin Tarantino filmed Pulp, Pulp Fiction and Jackie Brown. If you've seen those movies, they capture the charm of my hometown. Uh, I was a musician. I was a very good musician in a school, a very poor school. It's a working class Catholic high school with a great music program. I assure you that virtually everybody in the band and the jazz band was either a potential or an actual member of the criminal class. Uh, but you give somebody like that a drum or a trumpet and they channel the aggression, they channel the dissatisfaction, they channel the energy. And what, what else do musicians learn? To listen to each other, uh, to uh, get their rhythms in sync, to create a kind of collective. It gave them a positive form of socialization, unlike the gangs, and unlike you know, the other destructive things. When you take out those positive forms of socialization we call putting on a play, creating music, creating visual arts, putting out a magazine, a newspaper, learning to dance, singing in, in chorus, uh, you will, I think, lose one-third of your young men and women, which is what we are doing today. You see it on our media. You see it in our public places. If you go into 
a post office built during America's Great Depression. It is beautiful. Uh, it's stonework, murals, uh, carvings. You know, the counters are polished mahogany with, with hand-wrought brass. You have the conviction that if you mail a letter there, it will arrive. Uh, this is not true with new post offices uh, or new public buildings, which are usually eyesores. Uh, and it, the whole notion, and if you think about this, that we take what is best in our society and we make it the, the common wealth, the public sector, and that beauty and art rather than functionality and economy are important to that. You know, I, mean, I think you see what, what the problem is. Uh, and, I, and we have lost the conviction in this country, in this culture, that beauty matters. And this great, uh, not dumbing down, it's, it's a kind of profanation of our culture, has been aided and abetted by a great majority of our intellectuals. I predict uh, and I'll put money on this, uh, that in the next 20 years, the major theoretical trend in the United States is a rehabilitation of the concept of beauty because we've now hit bottom and we've seen the consequences of a kind of, of cynical politicization, materialization, nihilization uh, of that concept. Thanks. This, that leads me again, it's like we planned this. In, in your landmark essay, Can Poetry Matter? You argue for returning poetry to our common public language, and poetry out loud is, an, is, is a response to that. And poetry held that place in human speech for millennia up until the recent century. Is, what I wonder is, is there a connection between the denigration of beauty and the loss of poetry as a public voice? And do poetry and beauty go hand in hand? If we get poetry back in our public speech, will that help? It won't hurt. <laughs> I mean, if, if, you, if you think of the human arts, if you go back to the very beginnings of humanity, uh, you know, almost nothing that we have except you know, our, our bodies and maybe some rocks, some spears, some very primitive technology. The arts were essentially things you made with your body. And at the center of all of these arts was something that was dance, music, and poetry as one act. Now, interestingly, it, it never goes away. I mean, this is uh, American Idol and Dancing with the Stars nowadays. But it's, it's a, essentially where you, you create a ritual space of some sort and you perform, the, in a sense, the songs, the dances, the words, you know, which tell the, the stories which matter. Robert Frost was asked to define poetry, and he had a wonderful uh, answer. A way of remembering what it would impoverish us to forget. A way of remembering what it would impoverish us to forget. I mean, ancient people know that they need to know the stories of their ancestors. If they don't know where they came from, how can they possibly know where they're going? And those stories are embodied in poems. In our, 
society is so complicated, we can't possibly know all the stories of all of our ancestors. But what we can, and I think the purpose of poetry now, is to make us remember and become alert to what it is to be human. Uh, what it is to live in this world in a mortal body with some inkling of, of what is beyond uh, this world. And we are apt to forget that. Uh, you know, the purpose of poetry, like the purpose of art, is to awaken us to our humanity, to enlarge it, to enhance it, uh, to strengthen it. And we need that on a regular basis because we fall into our own habits, into the busyness, into the weight of our life. Uh, and that is why a society needs art. And poetry is, in a sense, one of the primal ways. And so I think that as long as people use words to express themselves, you know, to each other, to, you know, to, to themselves, poetry will remain central. And, and it's interesting. Just a little snippet of poetry has a kind of astonishing effect. I mean, if, if I just take a poem that you all have known, it was many and many a year ago in a kingdom by the sea that a maiden there lived whom you may know by the name of Annabelle Lee. And that maiden she lived with no other thought than to love and be loved by me. I was a child and she was a child in this kingdom by the sea. And we loved with a love that was more than a love, I and my Annabelle Lee. Now, that, even that little excerpt, I think creates a spell. It arrests you. You have the pleasure of the beauty of the language. And through that beauty, you perceive things. It may be memories. It may be uh, uh, sentiments. It may be thoughts. And remember this, you know, art and poetry does not primarily speak to our analytical intelligence. It addresses us in the fullness of our humanity, our intellect, our physical senses, our emotions, our intuition, our imagination, and our memory. Every one of you comes into this room with a different life experience. And you have the right, as an audience, to bring your life into a work of art and expect that it has room for at least part of it. That's why there's more than one interpretation uh, for works of art. There's different aspects that, that, that you, know, you can, in a sense, perceive that someone else would not perceive at the same moment of the same work. Art without an audience is a diminished thing. That doesn't mean that all works of art are for all people at all times. But if a work of art, if a school of art exists only for a small coterie of similar-minded artists, it is, I think, a humble thing. It does not have the power to reach beyond that coterie, perhaps not to everyone, but across to people who are alert and intelligent and curious and allows them to bring their lives into that, uh, then it's small. I think we're in an age where too much of the art that we see is small. Dana, maybe you could give us a few more examples of poems that aren't small. I'll give, you, I can, I'll give you one of my poems. I'm not sure it would be the best example of for me. But this is a poem, actually, uh, not a bad poem for this uh, space. 
It's a poem spoken by a statue. Um, you know, those of you who have been, traveled in the Southwest and Latin America know there's a tradition of carving religious images from wood. They're called santos. Uh, most of them are made by anonymous artists, folk artists, whose names we've lost. And, uh, and those that were in Mexico, most of them actually were destroyed in the Mexican Revolution, you know, when uh, Catholicism was outlawed. And those that are left are either highly guarded in churches or in museums or uh, in art dealers. And this is a poem spoken by a statue in a museum, a statue of an angel. Um, and it's about the difference in an object which has been made for religious ritual, which is now seen for aesthetic contemplation. The angel with the broken wing. I am the angel with the broken wing, the one large statue in this quiet room. The staff finds me too fierce, and so they shut faith's ardor in this air-conditioned tomb. The docents praise my elegant design above the chatter of the gallery. Perhaps I am a masterpiece of sorts, the perfect emblem of futility. Mendoza carved me for a country church. His name's forgotten now except by me. I stood beside a gilded altar where the hopeless offered God their misery. I heard their women whispering at my feet, prayers for the lost, the dying, and the dead. Their candles stretched my shadow up the wall, and I became the hunger that they fed. I lost my left wing in the revolution. Even a saint can savor irony. When troops were sent to vandalize the chapel, they hit me once, almost apologetically, for even the godless feel something in a church, a twinge of hope, fear, who knows what it is, a tremor unaccounted by their laws, an ancient memory that they can't dismiss. There is so much I must tell God. The howling of the damned can't reach so high, but I stand here like a dead thing nailed to a perch, a crippled saint against a painted sky. Uh, and, uh, uh, and let me, uh, uh, and now let me give you a little something of my own by Shakespeare. Um, um, the, uh, this is a speech that I thought of all the time in Washington, and, 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 it, and I think in some ways it gets to the nature of beauty. It's, it's from As You Like It. I'm sure you all know this, this, little, this little speech. It's by uh, one of the dullest named characters in Shakespeare, Duke Senior. Uh, and uh, his brother has usurped the throne. He's now living in the forests of Arden with a few of his knights. They're in exile. Some of them, are, you know, sort of daydream about returning to the court where they can enjoy the comforts, you know, of the court. Uh, and this is the advice that the Duke gives them. Um, there's, there's, I guess, one theological footnote, which is that in Eden, you know, before Adam fell, it was always summer, you know, always fruitful summer. Now, my co-mates and brothers in exile have not old custom made this life more sweet than that of painted pomp? 
Are not these woods more free from peril than the envious court? Here, feel we but the penalty of Adam, the season's difference, as when the icy fang and churlish chiding of the winter wind, which when it bites and blows upon my body, even till I shrink with cold, I smile and say, here is no flattery. These are counselors who feelingly persuade me what I am. Sweet are the uses of adversity, which like the toad, ugly and venomous, wears yet a precious jewel in his head. And this our life, exempt from public haunt, finds tongues in trees, books in running brooks, sermons in stone, and good in everything. I always thought that if the National Endowment for the Arts chairman had a motto, it would be, sweet are the uses of adversity. The drift a little bit um, and take us into And we are drifting. We are <laughs> drifting, and I like the drift. Uh, I recently, I was at uh, a friend of mine is a graduate of Notre Dame University and um, is a member of the Notre Dame Club in Orange County, California. And the Notre Dame Club had invited uh, the man whose name I unfortunately forget, even though I heard him speak, who is the chair of their architecture department that is putting forward the idea that maybe churches should be built in medieval and ancient styles because they, they, they functioned in a way that the contemporary churches or the churches of the last 50 years do not. And in the midst of, and part of the reason they had invited him is because those of you who don't know, the Roman Catholic Diocese of Orange bought the Crystal Cathedral. Just think about it for five seconds. So this has created a discussion, shall we say, among the Catholics of Orange County. So the Notre Dame Club is doing their bit and bringing this um, eminent architect to speak. So he talks and shows pictures of his basically pilgrim-style churches. The medieval pilgrim churches is what he's, are what he's rebuilding. And so then there becomes which something that made me wish I was still a religion reporter because it was the hottest argument I've been in since I went to a Baptist business meeting in my youth, you know. Uh, only the Baptists can have business meetings that last till 2 a.m. with people screaming at each other about the love. No, no, Jesus. Irish Catholics so, can too. Oh, they can too. Yeah. Yeah. We've got nothing on you. Anyway, so, so here they are, and the heated discussion is the 30-somethings arguing with the 60 and 70-somethings. The 30-somethings love this medieval architecture. They want it. Their life is a pilgrimage. They like walking to the altar, to the Eucharist, to Jesus, because they see their life as a journey to heaven, and they go through things to get there, and they like this. Meanwhile, somebody my age or older stands up, shaking with rage and red in the face and says, we learned in the 60s that the true Eucharist is the community and the altar should be in the center of the people. And it went on like this for a good 30 minutes. So I was just dying because I couldn't write it up. So I wonder, Dana, if you could enlighten us as to what role beauty does play in worship spaces, be they Catholic, Baptist, Jewish, whatever. Um, what is the role of beauty connected to worship? The most beautiful building in Israel was the Temple of Solomon. I mean, it was universally acknowledged that. 
Imagine if you were living in the Middle Ages uh, in a city with a cathedral. Uh, the experience of walking into that church, which the very uh, roof and ceiling would have been 20 times higher than the domestic space in which you live, in which light filtering you know, through stained glass windows and these great fluted columns. Uh, there was a notion that the purpose of a space to worship should be a space that in itself was uh, exhilarating, inspirational. I mean, if you think of the classic uh, Judeo-Christian definition of beauty, it's that we, and you think of this in terms of, which begins with natural beauty into artistic beauty, uh, is that we will, if we know God's works, we will love him. We know him through the glory of existence, you know, uh, and the purpose of the cathedral or even the smaller church was to bring you into a space which made you contemplate, as it were, the perfection of the cosmos. The, the very placement of the churches is in relationship to where the sun rises and falls, uh, where light enters in, if you think of this before electricity, uh, the natural patterns of sonic waves in terms of preaching and performing music. Uh, the religious architecture was related both to beauty and the laws of physics, which indeed is how it should be. You know, I live in the wine country of Northern California, and for years I've contemplated, uh, you know, a, a book about the appalling architecture of the Catholic churches of Sonoma County, which were built in the 60s and 70s. You know, and, it, it, and it's, uh, I've never seen an uglier lot of, of, of edifices, which are actually built in some ways where you can't even look straight at things. You know, they'll have two parts of it looking at an angle, but the altar is someplace else. There was a beautiful old church that was condemned, uh, Santa Rosa, St. Rosa's, uh, and they left it, but they built another thing in at a weird angle, so Christ looks like he's about to exit the building at an angle, you know. It's, it's just, it's horrifying. Uh, not as bad as the music, I should say. But, but I, I think that uh, American Christianity, I'll speak only for the Catholics, American Catholicism uh, has had a complete collapse of its traditional understanding that beauty and art were one of the things that brought people to God. That beauty was that put you into a, uh, a philosophical, a, uh, a human, a physical, forget philosophy, it's about, it's about your whole body, about the, your, yourself as an incarnated being, into a stance of, of attention and contemplation. And, and, and I think when you lose that, um, you lose many things. Uh, and, and certainly you don't have to be a believer to appreciate the beauty of churches, to uh, appreciate the beauty of religious art, you know? And so, so I think that we're at, we're at such a low point, you know? Uh, I gave a lecture at Santa Clara, and, and it was, it was, the room was chock-a-block with Jesuits. Um, and, uh, you know, one of them asked, well, you know, 
they, if we're going to do this, shouldn't the bishops, you know, do this and blah, blah. And I finally said, would you ever want any American bishop to make an artistic decision? I mean, are you crazy? You know, I mean, this is the last thing that you want. I mean, it, you know, uh, you know, and so, yeah. But, you know, but I, but what, you know, what I think is, I think it's time for artists to retake culture. To, you know, in a sense, to assert our, if not ownership, our stewardship over the institutions of culture and education and, and uh, demand that arts have a role in education, in the civic place. Because if we don't do it, it's not going to happen. It's unlikely to happen from people in institutional power. They've got other headaches. And certainly not the American Catholic hierarchy. Uh, <laughs> Well, let me ask one last question, and then we're going to open it up for some questions. But um, I thought I'd close with some reflections on the role of beauty and its relation to truth in particular. And, uh, and some of them I, I got from you and when I heard you speak earlier this year. You mentioned one already, Dostoevsky, Beauty Will Save the World. Um, a, a quote that I heard from you that I hadn't heard before, which struck me, was Oscar Wilde, man is hungry for beauty, there is a void. And then John Keats, which I think everybody in the room knows, beauty is truth, truth is beauty, that is all you know on earth and all you need to know. Um, are they right? Um, what does beauty have to do with truth and saving the world, and what does it have to do with art? Well, you know, Keats's statement from Endymion, you know, seems silly, doesn't it? You know, truth, that's all you need know. But, I, but actually, over the years, I've, I've understood, I mean, Keats is one of the greatest poets in the history of our language. And, and what he was saying was that if you attach yourself to beauty, if you seek beauty, and he's not simply talking about artistic beauty, he's talking about the beauty of the world and the natural beauty, the beauty of humanity. If you attach yourself to that, and if you look through that to see the truths that it is telling you, that in itself will be a reliable way of awakening and developing your humanity. Uh, I think that most people learn most of the time through beauty. It's usually inadvertent. Our educational system does not intend uh, this. But we tend to be drawn in by those things which we find beautiful and look through them to see what we find truthful. I think it's true in politics. I mean, what we're looking for politics is the vision of the just city, the vision of the just society which is not saying, I have you know, 365,000 laws, my uh, you know, opponent only has 34,000. We're seeing it as a whole, as an integrative whole that we experience emotionally, aesthetically, more than intellectually and analytically. Now we might pause and reflect and argue about this, that, or the other, but we either are drawn to that vision as beautiful or we hold ourselves apart from it. So, you know, uh, unlike most intellectuals, I do not believe that everyone who lived in the history of the world before me was stupid. Uh, you know, I think that 
people have with great difficulty, with great sacrifice, with uh, great effort, have discerned things about our existence, about the world, about society, uh, and that if we're smart, you know, we, we listen to them. Now, obviously, we always have to remake these things in ways for us. If we're lucky, we can add things onto it. Uh, but, but, you know, these, the, the truths that have been embodied, I think, in great literature are astonishing. There's very little that you need to know about people that you can't find in Shakespeare. And in fact, having spent eight years in Washington, D.C., I assure you it is absolutely Shakespearean. <laughs> you know, there are rises, falls, destructions, court entries. I mean, you know, the only thing is that it's, the language isn't as good. Uh, so anyway, that, you know, uh, uh, on that typical cynical and re reductive remark, I'll probably end my formal <laughs> things. Let's see if we have some questions. I, I think you, well, before that, Dana, I think you should uh, share with us a couple more poems. I think that would be a popular thing, and then we'll have some questions. I'll do one more poem. Okay. Um, you know, I, I, uh, there's, uh, this is a poem, and I, it comes to me because I borrowed the title from Shakespeare, who said, the lunatic, the lover, and the poet are of imagination all compact, by which he meant that all three of them are crazy. But the weird thing, Shakespeare goes on to add, is that these crazy people, these crazy lovers, uh, these poets, in their, in their mania, see things about the world that sane people, average people, miss. Now, this poem is about two things. The first is that we lead our lives by the stories we tell about our lives. I met a number of people today at the reception, and, and, and they would tell me a story about themselves. And, and it wasn't even uh, sometimes what the content of the story, the whole order of the story, where they chose to begin, where they chose to go, who they chose to acknowledge, told me all kinds of things about themselves that you know, they might not have, have, have been consciously revealing. And each of us, as our life changes, has to revise the story of ourselves. We know we're, part of being healthy is to be a, a writer, to constantly update your story, to include new people, to deal with new events, to, to deal with problems you're facing, et cetera, et cetera. And that is why everyone needs to study literature. Because unless you, from an early age, you learn the multiplicity of stories, the variety of characters, how when you run into problems, you'll be, there are rescues and reversals and plot twists, you will be in trouble because you will not be able to deal with the constant challenges of your life. I've known a number of people who have killed themselves. All of them were people who felt they were trapped in a narrative they could not change. Uh, the second thing that this poem is about, it's a love poem, is that I think love, and especially marriage, is mostly conversation. Uh, you know when you're in love with somebody because something that's happened to you is not real until you tell the other person about it, until you've wrapped your story back around theirs. Uh, you know, and, and this kind of uh, uh, infinite palaver is the surest sign of love. It, lust is easy. Love is relatively rare and elevated. This is a double sonnet, 
it's in the form I've invented myself, seven, 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 and seven. And with each stanza, I change the mood and the language. The lunatic, the lover, and the poet. The tales we tell are either false or true, but neither purpose is the point. We weave the fabric of our own existence out of words, and the right story tells us who we are. Perhaps it is the words that summon us. The tale is often wiser than the teller. There is no naked truth but what we wear. So let me bring this story to our bed. The world, I say, depends upon a spell spoken each night by lovers unaware of their own sorcery. In innocence or agony, the same words must be spoken, or the restless moon will darken in the sky, the night grows still, the winds of dawn expire. And if I'm wrong, it cannot be by much. We know our own existence comes from touch. The new soul summoned into life by lust, and love's shy tongue awakens in such fire, flesh on flesh and midnight whispering, as if the only purpose of desire were to explore its infinite unfolding. And so, my love, we are two lunatics, secretaries to the wordless moon, lying awake together or apart, transcribing every touch or aching absence into our endless, intimate palaver, body to body, naked to the night, apparelled only in our utterance. Wow. Um, I love that part of it. Actually, I'm going to read. Uh, actually, I'm going to read one other poem. It's very short. And it hadn't occurred to me until just this moment that. It's about a story. It's about giving something in your life that is impossible to work into your story and how one gradually does it. Uh, the, the, those of you in my audience who know me know that I, I, my first died at four months of sudden infant death syndrome. Uh, I think the grief that that goes, you know, basically doesn't need to be described. Uh, but something else rather odd happens. Um, any of you who have lost a child, I'm sure, will know this. I've never seen anybody mention it, though, in literature, is that every year when you see somebody about the same age, you begin to see your child uh, there. And the, the child has a kind of phantom life that you follow. And this is a poem um, I wrote on my, what would have been my son's 21st birthday. It's called Majority. Now you'd be three, I told myself, seeing a child born the same summer as you. Now you'd be six or seven or 10. I watched you grow in foreign bodies, leaping into a pool, all laughter, or frowning over a keyboard, but mostly just standing taller each time. How splendid your most mundane actions seemed in these joyful proxies. I often held back tears. 
Now you are 21. Finally, it makes sense that you have moved away into your own afterlife. Mm. Mm. Does anyone have a question? And you're in the military, 
to the beginning of the day that I turned 19, or 19 to 20, I was standing close to what I am to you, looking in the face of the person about to die in the gates of Buchenwald. And I was liberated Buchenwald that day. I discovered it at 18 to 19, and I moved to 20 years old. And, and after that was over, and I got out of the military after God, I seen it. And then just this year, I was called up, picked out of the crowd, as a liberator, and taken over to Auschwitz and Birkenau, representing myself as a liberator, along with 18 other liberators, to the young people. There were 12,000, and they was 12,160,000. And, and they all are sitting on the knees talking to me and wanting to hear their version of what I saw in the parents that died. And the moment they were talking to me, I was standing on piles of ashes, which were the ashes of the earth. I was dying. And the thing that hit me was that the Nazis that did with the most beautifully uniform group, Hitler had his whole country and everybody, 22,000 of these units, operating, killing people, and using it as a beautiful thing. They then it was beauty. And they found it in death. And when I was standing there looking at these bodies, rooms, staff, and corporate, uh, unbelievable, all nudity and all these camps, and other people there, and as President Eisenhower, General Eisenhower said, we want everybody in there to see. And what he did was, seeing it from my point of view, what was the beauty? Where did the beauty come from? Because it couldn't have happened unless people felt beauty and killed them. And it seemed death and misfortune. And so, in a sense, all that happened, and it still is, happened today in, in, in Europe and it's happening in Africa. The same days, dictators getting into the, the grave of the beauty and the life of the people that they control. And they control themselves. And in their lives. Yeah. Well, that's a very good question. And, and you know, I, I. You paraphrase the question. Well, I, I think what he's saying is that. The, I mean, I'm, I'm going to paraphrase it very. You know, somewhat differently. Germany was a, a country of great culture and cultivation, and that uh, there is something in the notion of what they did that is not unrelated to art and their pursuit of beautiful. I would say it this way: is that it cannot be coincidental that of the, the 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 rulers who killed the most people in the 20th century. Hitler was a painter. Stalin was a poet. Mao Zedong, uh, you know, was a poet. Uh, Mussolini was a novelist. Um, he didn't. He doesn't really rank, though. I mean, he was these small potatoes. Uh, Paul Pot beat him. Um, but if you look at these things, and they had a notion, and I think you're exactly right, that humanity was a canvas that they were going to edit. It was a poem that they were going to rewrite. Create a picture. Yeah, that, that there was a beauty of humanity, and Jews didn't fit into it, and gypsies didn't fit into it, and Slavs didn't fit into it, and homosexuals didn't fit into it, and uh, Catholic priests didn't fit into it, and you know, because and, 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 once you start killing people, you know, where can you stop? I mean, really, I mean, it's, it's always somebody that you're going to object to. And, and what I would say is that the other thing that's interesting about about Nazi Germany, and it's also true about uh, about Stalinist Russia and, and Communist China uh, was the notion that there was no moral authority beyond the state. It was, in, and I would never 
say that you lead your entire life by beauty, that society should be motivated only by beauty. And that's silly. There's notions of justice and morality. What I'm saying is that if you have uh, those things and you remove the notion of beauty, you will start to have the others ossify and become alienating rather than positive. That's why one of the things I always go back to is the WPA era, this era of tremendous poverty in the United States in which the state uh, essentially affirmed their, their public role by making the buildings, the objects that they created beautiful as a way of embodying the message of justice and fairness. Uh, and, and it's the, uh, I mean, Hitler's Germany, you know, comes out of essentially the same text that creates uh, deconstructions with this Nietzsche. If God is dead, then man puts in, himself in the place, and it's actually a superman, it's a competitive game. You know, and you have this, this uh, crazy artist, Hitler, who is treating the world as if it's an aesthetic object. Uh, and, and you can see this as one of, you know, I mean, and I'm, I'm not saying anything original, it's one of the most highly documented things. You can see that whole tendency growing out of, you know, the, you know, the, you know, the, you know Germany, especially in the 19th century, leading into the 20th century, you know, which relates to, to all kinds of major figures. But, uh, but please don't, don't think that I am an aesthetic who is replacing all other types of, of moral uh, knowledge or civic responsibility with, with aesthetics. Otherwise, you end up you know, with someone like Hitler or Stalin. One last question from over here. You, you, you said that we're sort of at a, a, a low point. Um, if we talk about and elegance, and we talk about Apple, and we talk about the product, yeah. and we talk about the love of the people that buy it, and we talk about the packaging, and the experience that you have when you buy the package, when you open the package, yeah. through the, can you talk about how Apple is really unique of any consumer product? Well, uh, yeah, that's, a, that's a terrific question and a terrific example. You talk about how elegant design, which is sort of forgotten by most of the corporate America, can really be reintegrated into products to really reinvigorate things. Yeah, I, I'm not sure if Apple is unique, but it is certainly the conspicuous and classic example. I mean, those of you who know Steve Jobs' biography know that he it had almost nothing, no college education. Uh, he did take one class. You know, which, and you'd sort of say, what is the worst possible class that you could be put into uh, for business education? And it would be calligraphy. Uh, and he studied calligraphy, and what he learned was an artistic truth, which is how you express something is part of what you express. How you uh, write something is part of what you're writing. Um, you know, it's not unrelated to, to Marshall McLuhan's The Medium is the Message, uh, which is to say that the presence or absence of beauty changes the appeal to this. And Jobs took that, and at a point when everybody else was just worrying about the pixel count that they could determine on this, and say, this is simply the medium that you're buying something is neutral. It's a machine, it's scientific. Jobs from the very beginning uh, was beautiful, 
Now, I remember, you know, I've used Apple from the beginning when it was about, a, had about 2% of the market. But that 2%, as you know, it was the artists, it was the designers, uh, it was the writers. Because right away they said, yes, we're at home. And gradually, beauty changes the world. You know, and I think that that's, that's the story of Apple. He has never forgotten the design of the store, the design of the packaging, uh, the design of the hardware, of the software, of the typography, of the logos, of the advertising. That it is, uh, if it, unless it is beautiful, it is nothing. Yeah. Well, you know, you know, beauty is is usually, you know, I mean, you think of beauty being based on nature. Nature is basically, you know, based on the the simplest solution to a problem, be it reproduction or condensation. Uh, you know, and that's you know, if you have two scientific explanations, both of which work, and one's simpler than the other, it's the simpler one which is adopted. Well, I think we should uh, we should adopt a, a silence now. Yes. Uh, uh, I don't want to be one of the outwearyers of Apollo. Uh, what a pleasure to be here. What a pleasure to see the paintings upstairs.